It's the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. And then we bring you the very best of those stories here on the podcast. I'm Susan Stone, and I'm joined once again by Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire. Hey there. Hi, Susan. Katie, it feels like a busy time for the Dead Lady Show, even as here in Berlin, we're going on a short summer break. It does, doesn't it? Um, we just had a show here in Berlin, I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this coming weekend, we're heading to Münster in, in West Germany for a show at the Center for Literature. And we're getting ready for a show in July at the Podfest Berlin on the 16th mm-hmm. and 17th of July. So I'm going to be there talking about the writer Ungard Coin in German. Jawohl. And uh, <laughs> podcast listeners have known know, know all about her in English. Um, and you, Susan, are talking about a very different writer. Yes, it's going to be a gothic page-turner queen, Virginia Andrews, better known as V.C. Andrews, of Flowers in the Attic fame. Yes, you just whisper that very quietly. Oh, shh, don't <laughs> let your mom know. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, we also have a show in New York. DLS NYC, and it's back. It's in the KGB Bar's Red Room. It's curated and hosted by our friend Molly O'Loughlin Kemper. That's the one, yes. <laughs> so n- neither you nor I have yet attended. Not yet. The New York show, anyway. But our dear floral loving co founder, Florian Dowsens, was there for the triumphant return last month, and he was even on stage. So we're going to hear from him all the way from New York, in this very episode. We are. But first, let's start with a question. Katie, what do Beyonce, Bjork, Sophie B. Hawkins, and Led Zeppelin have in common? They don't all have a B in their name. You're going to have to tell me. (laughs) It was close, though. The answer is, of course, our featured dead lady. Aha, here's Florian from New York's Red Room to tell us all about Memphis Minnie. Beyonce's Don't Hurt Yourself, Bjork's Army of Me, uh, bisexual icon Sophie B. Hawkins' Damn I Wish I Was Your Lover, all sample or gargantuan John Bonham beat uh, from When the Levee Breaks, a uh, classic Led Zeppelin recording from 1971. So in the grand old tradition of rock and roll, uh, however, this was a cover originally performed by black artists who were then billed as Kansas Joe and Memphis Minnie. Sadly, neither of these two would live to hear their work resonating throughout the late 20th and early 21st century music. Yet, Memphis Minnie was America's most popular female blues singer in the 1930s and 40s, aside from Bessie Smith, who you might have heard of, but she also did a lot of jazz, I guess, traditionally. So in fact, Minnie was far more popular than men like Robert Johnson or Charlie Patton or Lightning Hopkins, who... um, white men like me like to talk about a lot. (laughs) Minnie wrote a lot of her own songs. She played lead guitar. Uh, She released more solo recordings than her male partners. And in a side note, in the 40s, because of the material shortages, a lot of the records were melted down. So a lot of Lightning Hopkins records were actually made of Minnie, uh, or Minnie's records. Anyway, so though Minnie recorded about 220 sides 
not a great deal of her life is documented, and there's no birth certificate for any of her four different possible dates of birth. Most likely, she was born near Walls, Mississippi, in 1897. Her, her name was Lizzie Douglas, but her family called her Kid. She was the eldest of 13 siblings, four of whom died young. Her father was a sharecropper, going sugarcane, corn, cotton, and the like. Kid never took to farming, though, and also never finished school, though she didn't know how to read and write. By all accounts, she was a bit of a wild child, often running away um, right along this road to Memphis, particularly to Beale Street, where she got so obsessed with music that in the end, her parents gave her her first guitar at the age of eight. Soon after, she literally ran away with the circus, um, joining the Ringling Brothers for a tour of the American South. Here she is singing about her youth. I flagged the train. In her song, In My Girlish Days, she explains, I had to travel before I got wise. And she was certainly streetwise. As one friend said, any man fool with her, she'd go for them right away. She didn't take no foolishness off them. Guitar, pocket knife, pistol, anything she'd get her hand on, she'd use it. After World War I, she just turned 20. We find her just down the road from Walls again, living with her first musical partner, Willie Brown. Wasn't nothing he could teach her. Everything Willie could play, she could play, and then she could play things he couldn't, a friend later said. With him, she'd play all over the place, including white people's parties, but she never sat still for very long, and by the late 1920s, she was out of there, setting up shop with Joe McCoy, with whom she'd record some of her most enduring songs, like When the Levee Breaks. Playing for dimes at a Beale Street barber shop, uh, they were discovered by a record scout. Uh, they first went to New York to record in 1929, and in 1930, on the day of their first session for another label, they got married. It was probably a white record label exec who named them Kansas Joe and Memphis Minnie, even though Joe wasn't from Kansas, Minnie wasn't from Memphis, and Minnie wasn't her real name. Um, Joe was no slouch in the songwriting department either, so he uh, had written Why Don't You Do Right, which you might know, um, wildly popularized by Peggy Lee in 1942. Uh, the song was originally recorded by the black singer Lil Green the year before. Like Green, Minnie was never paid as much as Peggy Lee, though. Instead, she earned about as much as her male black colleagues, $12.50 per song in her early career. That's about 250 in today's dollars. By 1946, uh, she would have, quote-unquote, proven her value and was making $35 or $520 a pop. Billboard magazine wrote that she did especially well on jukeboxes, where she was said to, quote, make coin machine magic at the Harlem spots, end quote. Uh, So-called race records like hers were sold all over the place at furniture stores, at plantation commissaries, or via mail order. And by 1927, which was just before she started recording, 10 million race records were sold a year, uh, and though only 10 to 20% of black households actually had record players, many more had records. And 80% of the blues record buyers were actually women, um, and Minnie was very popular. 
And by 1935, it was so very clear that Minnie was a star, not Joe, so their credits were actually switched. Um, it became Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe instead. And Minnie started recording more and more solo material and also some saltier material, like Dirty Mother For You. <laughs> and also Bumblebee Blues about her um, male partner's excellent stinging skills. And off the mic, uh, Minnie also cursed like a sailor. Big Bill Brunzi confirmed that she was unlike other women. There was another woman going around Chicago saying she was Memphis Minnie, but when I saw her, I said, hell no, that's not Memphis Minnie, because the real Memphis Minnie can pick a guitar and sing as good as any man I've ever heard. This woman plays like a woman guitar player. And according to her friend and sometime lover, homesick James... This is just one in a series of amazingly named partners. It wasn't just cursing and playing guitar and gambling. She also drank like a man. And this is one of her favorite brands of wine, Wild Irish Rose. Uh, She chewed tobacco. Uh, She kept it in her mouth all the time. Even when she was singing, she kept that tobacco in her mouth. She had a coffee cup, be singing, spit right in there. She didn't care. Her sense of style stood out, too. Um, wearing nice dresses and high-heeled shoes, occasional glasses, as I maybe said, and sometimes even pricey wigs. Um, Here's a friend's anecdote. Minnie paid $200 for a wig. At that time, women wasn't wearing wigs, you know, unless they just had to. She paid $200 for a wig. She got drunk, went home that night, leave that wig on a chair. Now, someone had done and got her a little puppy. She woke up the next morning looking for her wig. Her wig was tore up and scattered all over the house. Minnie hit the puppy with her guitar, broke the neck off it, the guitar, I presume, and her husband let him out, and he said that dog didn't even look back. That dog did not come back at all. Minnie was also very particular about her jewelry story. Uh, so to speak, her smile sparkling with gold teeth, wearing a bracelet, as you can see there, made from a silver dollar from her birth year that her sister had given her. A friend noted that she also had a set of earrings made out of two silver dimes. Money was kind of her trademark. Her guitars were a point of pride, too, and she was one of the very first blues artists to use an electric guitar, playing Chicago venues billed as Memphis Mini and her electric guitar, or Master of Electric Guitar. Some sources suggest her marriage to Kansas Joe broke up because he was jealous of her stardom, but Minnie certainly seems to have initiated the break. Here's a clip from a song she recorded right around that time in 1937. Minnie was a slim, not particularly tall woman with a sharp tongue and an even sharper wardrobe. They had to fight the men's away from her, as her sister said. She's rumored to have dated men with wonderful names like Fiddlin' Joe Martin. Here he is on the left many years later. Um, And Blind John Davis, also much later. Uh, Not to mention a man called Squirrel, of whom I could find no pictures. In 1938, however, she met Ernest Lawlers, soon to be her new musical partner and second husband, Little Son Joe. Her friend said she was very faithful to him, you know? She never did get carried away about her husbands. 
He, however, would have to live in her shadow, as evidenced by the name on his record label, Mr. Memphis Minnie. Now, like millions of other black people, the two of them headed north, moving to Chicago's south side, uh, and marrying in 1942 here on Clark Street. Minnie spent a great deal of time on the road, though, touring all over in her 1938 Ford. Child, Minnie would say... I've been all over the world, New York, Chicago, California, adding, I drink anywhere I please, which in the Chicago years mostly meant gin. Still, there were limits. Um, On one of these tours near D.C., for instance, they all had to sleep in a field because the motels didn't uh, rent rooms to black people, nor were they allowed to eat uh, or drink with the white acts. She used the Ford until it quit and never was able to buy another car. She never learned how to drive it either, And in 1941, perhaps this is what inspired her to write and record what would become her biggest hit, Me and My Chauffeur. (laughs) Here's a clip from a later recording. despite what its lyrics about shooting her chauffeur may suggest. Um, Minnie always told her very religious sister that she was also a believer. Quote, only every time she'd get ready to get baptized, she couldn't resist going to play at a nightclub instead. End quote. And in the 1940s, Minnie was basically at the club nonstop, um, performing and partying at places like uh, Chicago's Club Delisa the Dipsy Doodle Lounge, and at legendary gay nightclub uh, Joe's Deluxe. Ebony Magazine did this wonderful story about their drag shows. Um, One song I imagine she'd play at drag shows, originally recorded in 1930, was Plymouth Rock Blues, in which she sings, I got so many chickens, can't tell my roosters from my hens. To get a better sense of just what a Memphis mini show looked and sounded like, we'll have to turn to Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes, who saw her at Chicago's 230 Club on New Year's Eve 1942. No video of Minnie exists, but I hope this long quote gives you a sense of her magnetism. Memphis Minnie sits on top of the icebox at the 230 Club in Chicago and beats out blues on an electric guitar. Minnie sings through a microphone, and her voice, hard and strong anyhow, for a little woman's, is made harder and stronger. The singing, the electric guitar, and the drums are so hard and so loud, amplified as they are by General Electric on top of the icebox, that sometimes the voice, the words, and the melody get lost under their noise, leaving only the rhythm to come through clear. The rhythm fills the Jew 30 Club with a deep and dusky heartbeat that overrides all modern amplification, the rhythms as old as Memphis Minnie's most remote ancestor. Memphis Minnie's feet in her high-heeled shoes keep time to the music of her electric guitar. Her thin legs move like musical pistons. She's a slender, light brown woman who looks like an old maid school teacher with a sly sense of humor. Before she plays, she cocks her head on one side like a bird, glances from her place on the box to the crowded bar below, frowns quizzically, and looks more than ever like a colored lady teacher in a neat southern school about to say, Children, the lesson is on page 14, paragraph 2. But Memphis Minnie says nothing of the sort. Instead, she grabs the microphone and yells, Hey now! 
Then she hits a few deep chords at random, leans forward ever so slightly over her guitar, bows her head, and begins to beat out a good old steady down-home rhythm on her strings, a rhythm so contagious that it often makes the crowd holler out loud. Then Minnie smiles. Her gold teeth flash for a split second. Her earrings tremble. Her left hand with dark red nails moves up and down the strings of the guitar's neck. Her right hand with a dice ring on it picks out the tune, throbs out the rhythm, beats out the blues. Langston Hughes. Her music did rock harder than most of her contemporaries. This we know from a story Big Bill Brunsey tells in his memoir about one of the many blues battles he and Minnie played. The club was packed. There was an open bar. It was 1.30 in the morning. Both Bill and Minnie were plenty sauced, and the judges signaled they would start. Bill played his two songs, and then Minnie took the stage after him, starting with a 20-minute version of Me and My Chauffeur. Um, (laughs) Afterwards, the judges were unanimous. Uh, Bill writes, they went to the stand, picked Minnie up, and carried her around the hall until her husband saw them, got up, and told him, put her down, she can walk. He was jealous, jealous of any man. She'd also battle Muddy Waters. She'd get it every time. Muddy just couldn't do nothing with Memphis. No, nah, not back then. A witness confirms, I saw her beat ten different artists one night. In the late 1940s, Minnie and Son were living in a two-room apartment, and she continued playing Chicago venues throughout the early 50s, among them Tiny and Ruby's Gay Spot, a lesbian bar run by Tiny Davis. Um, She was a trumpet player with the all-female International Sweethearts of Rhythm. Um, This was their saxophone section. A group made up of women with Latina, Asian, white, Indian, Puerto Rican backgrounds. Uh, They're amazing. There's a whole documentary about them on YouTube. They have a track called Digging Dykes. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't? Um, By 1958, there was an expressway where the gay spot used to be, and Minnie's career was also foundering. One blues fan found her playing music between the acts at strip joints, and though reports on this aspect of her life are naturally shady, it's very probable Minnie also supplemented her unreliable musician's income through sex work, especially in the early years of her career. In the late 1950s, she'd visit her sister-in-law in Memphis more and more often, ultimately moving back south because of son's health. But doctors were expensive, and Minnie's precious guitars were in and out of pawn shops. They didn't have a TV or record player, lived off welfare. She drank whiskey. They made a home brew from yeast cakes and potatoes. In 1960, she had a stroke and ended up in a wheelchair. Son died the year after, and Minnie lived her final years at her sister-in-law's and then at a nursing home. By this point, she could no longer play guitar, but the blues was being rediscovered, and people like Bonnie Raitt were trying to track her down. Benefits were held as far away as the UK to support her. She died on August 6th, 1973, aged 76, and is buried at the Walls Cemetery. 23 years later, she received this gravestone paid for by Bonnie Raitt. There's one biography of hers, um, Woman with Guitar, Memphis Minis Blues by Paul and Beth Guerin, first published just after her death and expanded in 2014. But I wish she'd had the chance to tell her own story, as most short pieces online describe her as a talented monster who abused men for no reason. (laughs) 
like she wasn't making her way through an extremely masculine space threatened by racism and violence at every turn from police brutality to domestic abuse and exploitation. We end up having to rely on the stories of jealous men like Muddy Waters, stories that ultimately reveal more about them and their prejudice and their insecurities. Muddy Waters said, she was a great girl, but she was a woman. You know, when a woman's out there doing the job and you're doing the job she's doing, it could get a little evil sometimes. She didn't have the strong mind like the man because she can get frustrated and fly off the handle. And that's the only thing that's wrong with her. She'd get a little evil sometimes. Jimmy Rogers remembers one night when they were at the 708 Club, which was here. Um, well, I'll let Jimmy tell the rest of the story. She uh, came in from someplace she had been playing. Sanjo was over in the booth where we were. There's a few ladies sitting around there. So she came over where we were sitting at, and she picked his glass up. I thought she was going to drink it. She picked the glass up and dashed the whiskey in his face, man. Oh, man, that was burning whiskey and alcohol burning real bad. That's the roughest I've seen her, but they said she could get rougher than that, you know. Uh, Johnny Shines claimed that she could get rougher still. They tell me she shot one old man's arms off. Down in Mississippi, shot his arm off or cut it off with a hatchet, Some something. Some say shot, some say cut. Minnie was a hellraiser, I know that. A lot of things they say she did in the past, I believe it. She'd work Sanjo over right on the bandstand, right in front of the whole audience. Bang, bop, boom, bop. Now, I don't want to minimize any abuse that Minnie may have inflicted on men or puppies. Um... But to me, she sounds like a woman who fought back, who resisted a system that was set up to exploit women like her and appropriate their work. I'd like to remember her like this instead, looking confidently into the camera in a white ball gown, holding her guitar. See that silver dollar bracelet again? And with a song that she recorded in 1946 called Hold Me Blues, in which she sings, The judge said, Minnie, how come you mistreat your man? I said, Judge, you know you ain't a woman, and you sure can't understand. (laughs) And it may be a blues track, and we may think of that as sort of doomy or gloomy or, I don't know, mopey. Um, But it's so full of joy. And in fact, in that same song, she also emphasizes, because I lived the life I loved, and I love the life I lived. She recorded 10 different takes of this song, each with different guitar solos and ad-libs, but I like take seven the best. The judge said, Minnie, how come you mistreat your man? I said, Judge, you know you ain't a woman, and you sure can't understand, cause he hold me. Florian Dalsons on Memphis Mini, recorded by Jen Nolson at the Red Room in New York's KGB Bar. And if you want to hear all of those songs that Florian mentioned from Mini, and others. we have a playlist prepared. And others, exactly. We have a playlist prepared to bring the blues to your ears. You can find it, along with some of those wonderful photos of Mini and other info, over on our episode page at deadladyshow.com slash podcast. And we'll also share some of those links and pictures and songs on our social media accounts at Dead Lady Show. And that's also where you can get some information on advanced tickets to our events. And you can let us know also which dead ladies you would like to hear about next. 
If you'd like to read our show, or you know someone who would, we have transcripts. Yeah. <laughs> I just recently met our transcriptionist, Annie Musgrove, and you can find her hard work on the show episode pages on our website. Our archive podcast project is funded by you lovely listeners who give Yay. generously on our Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash deadladyshowpodcast, all one word. Indeed. Thank you to Katie. Thank you to Florian, to Molly, to Jen in New York, and all the lovely people who came out to see their show at the Red Room under the auspices of the fabulous Laurie Schwartz. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsens and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Our theme tune is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. Thanks to everybody out there listening. We'll be back again next month with another fabulous Dead Lady. Dead Lady.